The title of our message today is Seven Surprising Things About Palm Sunday. I have a subtitle. The subtitle is, This is More Complicated Than You Think. <laughs> I can tell you, putting together a study, wanting to cover everything, and, and, and here's one of my difficulties, is that I really want to cover it all. There's so many good things, I want to cover everything, and I'm, you, you think I would learn before this because I've been doing this for 40 years. I'm learning, I can't cover it all. I remember what Charles Swindoll said, if you exhaust your topic, you exhaust your audience, and I don't want to exhaust you. Some of you look exhausted already. You're exhausted enough. I don't want to do that, all right? I want you guys to be able to hang in here. Uh, so there are, very, there are certain parts of this account that you're very familiar with. Let me just cover what the triumphal entry was. By the way, I'm not sure that's the right name for it, and I'll share why with you as we make our way into this study. But Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, hailed as king. People have spread out their robes on the ground in front of him, the red carpet treatment, and they are waving around palm branches, and they are crying out, Hosanna, the, the word Hosanna means save now. So there are his disciples, people entering into Jerusalem, and they're hailing him as king and asking him to save now, which is exactly what he's going to do in a different way than they expected. Many of them want him to save now by freeing them from the Romans, by getting them out from under the Roman bondage, but he will save them from their sins. And by the way, what's more important, that they would be out from under the tyranny of Rome or that their sins would be forgiven? Jesus knew the greatest need of mankind was that sins would be forgiven. He knows that that's your greatest need. If, if you today were to say, I, I'm going to tell you what my greatest need is. If I have one need, that's my greatest need. The real greatest need is your sins to be forgiven. Now, if they're already forgiven, then tell me your greatest need. Then I want to hear it, all right? But the greatest need, and that's why when a paralyzed man was brought before Jesus and, and, and four of his friends tore a roof off to lower him down to Jesus, and Jesus said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven you. And I just picture the guys up in the roof. No, 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 no. he's paralyzed. But Jesus said, so that you would know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your bed and walk. And the guy picked up his bed and he walked out of there as a sign that Jesus can forgive sins. There's no sin he can't forgive. And even a paralyzed man, the greatest need that he has is the forgiveness of sin. That's why he's writing to Jerusalem. Now, really quick, let's just get the picture. We have the Mount of Olives, which, which faces... Uh, the east side of Jerusalem. So when you come over the Mount of Olives, you have this grand view of Jerusalem. And today, if you take a trip to Israel, and I would encourage you to do that, it's an awesome thing to do, you will go up on top of Mount Olivet. There are three mountains, and they look like hills, but remember, you're up high in the mountains in Jerusalem. So they look like hills, but you've got Mount Olivet. The bottom of that is the Garden of Gethsemane. Then you've got Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount. Then you've got Mount Zion, which is the next mountain over that, and that is synonymous with Jerusalem. When the Bible talks about Zion in the Old Testament, it's talking about Jerusalem, okay? 
So on that morning, they got up, got ready, got the donkey, and then came and crested the Mount of Olives. And they had that beautiful view of Jerusalem, the walled city. Today, there's a Dome of the Rock there. It's got that gold top on it. It's about three stories high. It's beautiful. It's a, the East Gate is off to your right. The Dome of the Rock is almost directly in front of you. And it's gorgeous. You've got these old walls that are around the city of Jerusalem. It, and they're all golden. You have to use a certain color stone when you build in Jerusalem. And they're all just, it's just a beautiful view. It would have been more so in his day. Because as he crested that mountain, he would have seen the temple, which was 10 stories high, built by Herod the Great, with a gold band around the top of it. And facing him would have been the two pillars out in front of the temple. And the pillars had names. They had two pillars with two names that were very distinct. And they would have been, they would have seen. And, and they're going to Passover. Passover's a week from here. Jesus will die on the day that they slaughter the Passover lambs. And there's no mistaking that. We're going to get into this in detail over the next few weeks and months as we study the last week of the life of Jesus. He is our Passover lamb. That's why he dies on the day the Passover lambs are killed and the death angel will pass over you if you apply the blood of Jesus Christ to your life. This is not a New Testament picture. This is an Old Testament picture. And so as he makes his way down into Jerusalem, down that into the Kidron Valley or along the causeway that went into the Eastern Gate, because in there, it's not there today, but in their day, you could walk from the top of the Mount of Olives and you could walk all the way around and go right onto the, the top of the Temple Mount that was there. But as Jesus makes his way over there, they're singing, they're praising. But before this is done, I want to show you the heart that Jesus had. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to read the text. And then I want to look at seven surprising things about the triumphal entry. All right, let's pick it up in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. When he had said this, he went on ahead and going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? You shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of uh, of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their clothes on the colt and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes along the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the Lord who comes in the name, but saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said, I tell you, the truth. I tell you that these 
shall keep silent, that if these shall keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. What an incredible account. Did you notice a few things? Did you notice that the donkey had never been ridden on before? Remember that Jesus is buried in a grave that no one has ever been buried in. So there are certain things that Jesus does that are the very first because he's breaking ground and doing the first thing that anyone has ever done. He is the first one to never sin. He will be crucified for sin and then he will rise from the dead in his glorified body. The first one to rise with a glorified body out of that grave that no one had ever laid in before. Now, I want to discuss seven surprising things about this passage. And as I said, it's far more complicated than you think. And I'm going to get in the weeds a little bit. I just want to warn you. All right. But I think that we need to sometimes. We need to look at the things that are tough and we need to think, be able to think them through. All right. So I'm going to get in the weeds a little bit. But here are seven surprising things. The first one is there's a surprising request from Jesus about this donkey. Go and get the donkey. And take it. And if somebody says to you, why are you taking the donkey? Tell them the Lord has need of him. And when you put the, the, in the Greek, those two words together, the Lord, it's saying something distinct about that individual. I, I use this example. If I tell you I'm going to the Capitol, you probably think I'm going to DC. If I say to you, I'm going to our Capitol, you probably think we're talking about Arizona. Because when we say the, it puts importance on it. Sometimes we could say, you know, we might say, I'm, I'm going to get a car. And then when you say, well, I'm going to get the car. Well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean the car? What's the car? What the car are you going to see? So when he says, tell them the Lord has need of it, not tell them my Lord has need of it, not tell them our Lord has need of it, but my Lord has need of it, is saying something about who Jesus is. Now, Jesus could have told them, go to the village next to us. These are small hamlets. These are small villages. Go to the village next to you. You're going to find a donkey tied up outside. Go knock on the door and ask the owner for the donkey. Could have done that. But instead he said, go get it and untie it and bring it to me. And if anybody asks you, tell them the Lord has need of it. So they go there and they start to untie it. And sure enough, what are you doing? Taking the donkey. The Lord has need of it. Oh, by all means, go ahead and take it. Now, some try to say that this is prearranged, but I think they're missing the point when they say that, that Jesus prearranged it. Jesus is saying to us, when it comes to this week, this is the last week of his life, the, the passion, it's called, right? He's going to suffer in a way. I, I'm, I'm going to say this, and I think it's true. Some may object, but he is going to suffer in a way that is as bad as anyone else ever suffered in this week. He is going to be betrayed by friends. He is going to be denied by a friend. The disciples are going to scatter. On top of that, he's been nothing but loving and caring and healing. He, he, is, he is the kind of person we want to know, and those things happen to him. And he wants you to know, he wants me to know that he's in charge, that these things are not happening to him that he is laying his own life down. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay my life down. When, when he laid down on that cross, they were not grabbing his arms while he was fighting it, screaming and hollering and holding his arm down and driving nails through his hands. 
They were used to that. They were used to being cursed when they crucified people. They were used to being bribed when they crucified people, crucified people. They were used to being begged, please, please don't, please don't, please don't, when they, were cru when they crucified people. But they were never used to someone laying down on the cross and stretching out their hands and saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And they drove the nail through his flesh and into that tree and they hung him up between heaven and earth. And he wanted to know, us to know, he's not a victim. Jesus wasn't a victim. I play some golf. Any of you guys here golfers just to, to know? I've always swore I would never use golf analogies from the pulpit, but here I am. I, pray, I play some golf and there's a couple of guys that I play with and you golfers are gonna recognize guys like this. Nothing is ever their fault. When, when, when they have a hit a bad shot, it was in a divot. When they, when they make a bad putt, these greens are way too fast, it's unfair. I've got a line that I say to them periodically. When someone starts talking like that, my grip was loose, it slipped. My foot was slipped, I don't have the right shoes. They've always got a reason why they're playing bad. Here's the reason. Golf is hard and, and you're not that good. That's why you're not playing good, all right? And I'm right there with it, okay? I understand. But I have a line that I tell them all the time, that I'll tell people after they start really, you know, everything, every shot, they've got something to say. Every shot. I'll, I'll say, you're a victim. <laughs> if only you weren't a victim, you'd be playing golf really well, but you're a victim, man. And, and Jesus wants you to know that he is not a victim. He is in control and he is giving his life for you. This doesn't happen to him, it happens because of him. And this whole strange thing about the donkey helps us to understand that. The second surprising thing that we see is that Jesus' ministry changes at this point. And I think it's for the same reason. You remember in the early part of the ministry of Jesus, and if you've studied Luke with us, you know this, Jesus would often tell people, don't tell anybody. When Peter said to, to Jesus, you're the, you're the Christ of God. The Greek word Christ is the Hebrew word Messiah, the promised Messiah, the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah. He says, you are the Messiah of God. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. That's interesting because the time hadn't come yet. He needed to die for, for people. There's another one, and I want to read you this one. Open up, look in your Bibles if you want to turn here to Luke 5, 12 through 14. It'll come up on the screen too if you just want to read it. It says, and it happened when he was in a certain city that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. This is not a man that has just gotten leprosy. This is a man that is full of leprosy. He is separated from his family. He has to cry out unclean when he approaches people. It is seen as something bad in his life. Not that leprosy came from something bad, but anybody that had anything bad to them, they believed it was their fault in their day. And so he's full of leprosy and he fell at the feet uh, on his face and implored him. So he falls at the face of Jesus and implores him saying, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. Now, leprosy is a type of sin in the Bible. And he says, if you're, you, don't, you are not healed from leprosy, you are cleansed from leprosy. Just like you're cleansed from sin. You're not healed from sin, you're cleansed from sin. And so he says, if you're willing, then make me clean. 
And then immediately Jesus re reached out his hand, touched him, which was against the law. By the way, the, the leper was breaking the law because he came and fell at the feet of Jesus. He's supposed to stay a, a, a distance away, a stone's throw away. He's supposed to stay from people. And that's why if they saw a leper closer than a stone's throw, they would pick up rocks and start throwing it at the lepers because they were supposed to stay that far away from people. He comes to Jesus, falls on the ground, says, if you're willing. And he says, I am willing to be cleansed. Jesus is always willing to forgive sin. I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him to tell no one. Now, I don't know what his name was. Maybe his name was Nathaniel, Nathaniel the leper. And he's supposed to go show himself to the priest. He says, but go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for the cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. So he walks up to his family. He walks up to his dad. His dad looks at him. You're cleansed. You're no longer a leper. How did it happen? I, I can't say. <laughs> I can't tell you. He goes to the priest. And he says, look at me and, and, and declare me clean. I'm no longer a leper. And the priest is like, how'd that happen? I can't say. I want to tell you, but I can't tell you. There was one man, Jairus, that had his daughter raised from the dead. And Jesus said, tell nobody. And the Bible says in the next line that he went and told everybody. <laughs> he was just like, I got to tell you. So, so people have come up with the idea of the secret. Have you ever heard of the secret of Jesus? Not the secret as in the, the weird, strange, culty kind of thing. But the secret as in Jesus had a secret. He told people not to tell anybody about him. Well, the secret was simply... He had to have the right time to be hailed as king. And if everybody learned he was the Messiah, if everybody knew all the miracles that he was doing, they would be overwhelmed. They already tried to make him king. Do you remember that? They tried to take him and make him king. And the Bible says he slipped from them and left them. He would not allow them to make him king. And so that Jesus was, there's a change in his ministry now. He doesn't tell people not to tell anybody. Everything is in the open. They're hailing him as king. Earlier, they wouldn't let him be king. This change in ministry where he's no longer telling them to keep it silent, but everything is in the open will cause the enemies of Christ to be so angry that they will crucify him. At this event where he rides in, hailed as king by the crowds, here's what the Pharisees say. It's in, it's in the book of John. See, you are accomplishing nothing. The whole world has gone after him. That's the jealousy of the scribes and Pharisees that they will hand Jesus over to the Romans. The third surprising thing that we see in this is the surprising case of what I call the unbroken donkey. I did a lot of research this week on donkeys. It's something I never thought I would research. When I have my time to research, you start researching them. And, and if you own donkeys or have been around donkeys, which surprisingly a lot of people have, you find out that their temperament is a lot different than horses, that they are stronger than horses, their backs are wider, they can carry more of a load, that's why they're called a beast of burden. They are not as temperamental, they don't get as hurt as easily as horses do. They do need to be broken, but they're certainly no bucking bronco. When it comes time to break them, you know, you don't gotta worry about just absolutely being murdered by the horse or by the donkey, that's not gonna happen. Donkeys are more comfortable to ride. I never knew that. You guys that have horses, you know you've gotta learn 
that when a horse gets into a certain rhythm, you got to be with the rhythm of the horse. Otherwise, you're like, <laughs> donkeys, when they run, don't run like that. Their feet kind of just go and their bodies stay stable. You can ride donkeys easier. So this donkey, and that's not, not, that's not a surprise that the donkey's here. We know that. We know the triumphant entry has a donkey. But I want you to listen to Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. Or, or you can turn there if you want to. Turn to Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. And listen to how completely this Old Testament passage describes the event. Someone said to me one time, well, a person riding into a donkey is not a very um, amazing prophecy to fulfill. How many people have ridden into town on donkeys, really, Robert? And you think it's amazing that Jesus fulfilled it. It's not the donkey. It's the way it happens. Listen to this prophecy. It says in Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and his river and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. He rode in on that donkey, not on a war horse. That's what that verse is saying. They hailed him as king when he rode in. This is exactly what happened. This is a distinct event that all around the world today, Christians are remembering and celebrating. The fourth surprising things that, thing that happens is it is connected to a verse that is greatly misunderstood in the book of Genesis about someone named or called a title called Shiloh. Now, I do a Q&A every Wednesday from 4 to 5, every Saturday from 4 to 5. I do it on YouTube and on Facebook. It gives you guys an opportunity. And the design really is that when we're covering certain passages, if you've got questions about what we're covering, you can come on and you can ask those questions. We take questions about anything, but really we want it to be, and, and as it develops, more of a connection to what we're talking about this week. Like you guys would, would log in on Wednesday if you have questions about what we've been looking at. And um, one of the questions that I get periodically is who is Shiloh in Genesis 49, 10? Jacob is blessing his sons. He's got 12 of them. And it takes a while and all the blessings come true. And when it gets to Judah, and Judah is, Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And if you ever study Jacob's sons, let me just put it this way. They are a mess. The only one that's not a mess is Joseph who gets sold into slavery. But when he's younger, he's a mess. He has a dream that his brothers are going to bow down to him. He has a dream that they're collecting wheat in the field and they're making sheaves and that his brother's sheaves come and bow down to his sheave. And so he, what does he do? He tells his brothers, this is the younger brother. You guys have a younger brother? Are you guys the younger brother? Can you imagine? Hey guys, that's what I had a dream last night that your guys' sheaves bowed down to my sheaves. And dad made me this coat of many colors, which means I'm going to rule over you guys on top of that. They tried to kill him. They sold him into slavery. 
And if you want to study Judah, Judah's a mess. But Jesus says, I'm going to take this mess of a man and I'm going to bring the Messiah through him. And it's good news for us because some of us have to admit, I'm a mess and God will still use you. It's the great thing about God. But when he comes to, to Judah and he puts his hand on Judah's head and he blesses him, he says this. And again, what does it mean? He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. A scepter belongs to a king. A scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And he shall be the, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, bringing his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine and washing his garments with wine and his clothes with the blood of grapes. Now, we aren't going to get to the, the blood of grapes here. I think you could probably make your own connection there because Shiloh, what does Shiloh mean? That's the question that I get. What, what is, who, is, who is Shiloh? What does Shiloh mean? The name Shiloh literally means the one to whom it belongs. And it's talking about a specific promised person. The scepter won't depart from Judah. Law giving from between their feet until the one to whom it belongs has come. That's literally how you would translate that. Jesus is Shiloh. It's a reference to the Messiah. And it's talking about tying up a donkey's colt to it. There's a connection between him riding into Jerusalem, hailed as king, the one to whom the scepter belongs to. But understand the point that's being made here, that the Messiah has to come before the scepter is removed from Judah and the lawgiver from between his feet. So when Judah, which Jerusalem is in Judah, when Judah can no longer make laws and when there is no longer a king in Judah, then the Messiah will have already have come. One, one of the things I like to ask people, I, when I witness, and this is a great way to witness and to share with people, is to genuinely ask questions, to really care about people. I'm not asking them to just kind of, so I can share Christ. I want to share Christ, but I'm just asking them, what do you believe about God? Do you believe there's a heaven? Do you believe you're going to heaven? And I'm just interested. One of the questions I'll ask is, you know, the Bible promised the Messiah, all these places. Who do you think the Messiah is? And it's funny, the questions that I'll get, I get people who will tell me, what was Gandhi? That's the funniest one that I get, actually. And, and I always say, will, will you do me a favor and just go do a little research on Gandhi? Gandhi had problems. Gandhi had real problems, okay? There's no way Gandhi could be the disciple. Or they'll tell me some other cult, you know, Mahajo, whatever, and they'll tell me there's some cult leader. And, I, and, and once I talk to them a little bit, they'll realize the only candidate out of all of the world for the Messiah is Jesus. Sometimes people will say, well, you Americans just believe in Jesus because you're Americans. Was Jesus American? It's 2,000 years ago in the Middle East where no one cared about. And he influenced the world like no other ever influenced them. But the Messiah, anyone born after 70 AD cannot be the Messiah because the Romans besieged the city of Jerusalem. Remember, that's in Ju Judah. Besieged the city of Jerusalem in 66. It took them four years to take the city. When they took it, they were so angry 
They burned it to the ground so much that Josephus, the historian, says it was nothing but piles of hills. They killed women and children. They crucified the men. They raped the women. They drugged them off as slaves and they dispersed them around the world. Horrible event. The Messiah had to come before that. You can't say the, the Messiah came after it. That's what the Shiloh whole thing is about. The scepter won't leave Judah until Shiloh, until the one that it belongs to has come. We'll return to what happened to Jerusalem here in a minute. The fifth surprising thing is the case of salvation bringing salvation. The fifth surprising thing about Jesus riding into Jerusalem is that his name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation or God is salvation or salvation. And he, he got, Joseph didn't name him that. Joseph in a dream had an angel tell him his name shall be called Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. We lose the wordplay in English because Jesus to us doesn't mean salvation. But Joshua does. So in Hebrew, the angel would have said, name him salvation, for he shall save his people from their sins. And now we read in Zechariah 9.9, your king comes to you lowly, riding on a donkey, having salvation. So salvation rides into Jerusalem, bringing forth salvation. When, um, when they're singing this psalm, we hear them saying, Hosanna, you know, blessed be God in the highest. And they're that's a psalm they're singing. It's a psalm of ascent. It's Psalms 118. And sometime on, on Palm Sunday, we're just going to go over the psalm because it's a messianic psalm. They're singing a song about the Messiah to Jesus. I just want to read you a portion of it. You can look at one Psalms 118.21. This is the psalm that they're singing to Jesus as he comes in on this donkey. I will praise you, for you have answered me. I uh, and have become my salvation. These are the things people are singing. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. Save now, which was what Hosanna means. Save now. One of my first exposures to Jesus was the movie Jesus Christ Superstar. It's a very bad movie. It leaves Jesus on the cross. And there's that blasphemous song by Mary Magdalene, uh, I Don't Know How to Love Him. You guys, can you remember that one? I don't know how to love him. He's a man. He's just a man. Uh, it's a very bad movie. It's a very bad song. But they've got the song in it. Hosanna, hey, Zanna, Santa, Santa, hey. Santa, Hosanna, hey, Santa, right? And, and then it gets disrespectful. Hey, JC, JC, won't you die for me? Hannah uh, So, Hannah uh, So, anyway, Hosanna, anyway, the, the rest of it. I, I was so moved by that movie because I grew up in the Methodist church, but I never learned about the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter on the night Jesus was arrested and killed the next morning. And when I watched that show, it became real to me. I bought the album and I memorized it. <laughs> I, kind of. I kind of have it still in my head today. But... The surprising thing is that salvation is bringing salvation. And it's where it says here, save now, that's Hosanna. That's what reminded me of my first exposure to Hosanna. Save now. The people are crying out, save now. Salvation is riding in. I pray, O Lord, it goes on to say, I pray send now prosperity. And he's not talking about riches and money. The prosperity preachers will say that. I have a friend of mine who says, you don't take any opportunity to not preach against the prosperity teachers. 
True. Let's do it here as well. Not very long. All right. I'm just saying true prosperity in life is not just money. Isn't that just true? You just got to know that. There's all kinds of people that have a bunch of money and they are just a mess. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So that's the song that they're singing him. So it's surprising that salvation is bringing salvation and they're saying save now. And that's his name. The sixth surprising thing is the, uh, there's a verse here that isn't in Psalms 118. We're told as they come in, they sing this 118 and then they add something that's not from 118 and we can't tell where it's from. And it's almost a Christmas verse. It's as if they're singing and they connect the birth of Jesus five miles away from Jerusalem in Bethlehem to Jesus riding in his king and bringing salvation. Listen to what it says in Luke 2, 14. This is the angels talking to the shepherds we're in Bethlehem where Jesus is born. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. We're familiar with that. We're familiar with that because of the Christmas story and we're familiar with that because of the Charlie Brown Christmas story <laughs> in which he reads this and goes over it. But here's what they say in Luke 19, 38. This is our text saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. I say it's almost a Christmas verse because the Christmas verse was peace on earth, glory in the highest. They sing here, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. It's as if Jesus brings the peace of heaven to earth. And when there's peace in heaven and earth, that means that we have things right between us and God. The Bible talks about you having peace, the peace of God. When you're a Christian, there's a strange peace. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here. I think every Christian here has had that strange peace. When your peace should be taken from you, he gives you a peace that you shouldn't have. You just go, I don't know, things aren't good right now, but I have a peace about it. That's because he gives you peace. But you also have peace with God. Before Jesus, the wrath of God was upon you and you needed someone to make peace with God. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemaker, peacemakers. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. So it's surprising that there's almost a Christmas verse there. And I'm, I'm finally at the end. The seventh surprising statement is Jesus said the rocks would cry out. It's time for me to be identified as king, as the savior, as the Messiah. And if I didn't do that, the rocks would cry out. And it reminds me of an Old Testament messianic prophecy about when the Messiah is finally revealed. This is when he not comes to die, but he comes to establish his kingdom. This is Isaiah 55, 12. It says, for you shall go forth with joy. When Jesus is riding this donkey, he doesn't have joy. I'll, I'll, I'll end with that here in a moment. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> you will go forth with joy. This is Isaiah 55, 12. You shall go forth with joy, be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth with singing. If my disciples are silent now, the rocks will cry out. The mountains and the hills will break forth with singing. This is a messianic prophecy. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. What a strange thought. Creation 
the mountains and the hills singing to God and the trees clapping their hands. Now, in closing, I have one thought. As Jesus makes his way into uh, down the Mount of Mount Olivet, either he goes across the causeway and goes in the eastern gate or he goes in the southern gate. We're not told, so we don't know. However, he makes his way into the temple. You would think he'd be full of joy. That's what Isaiah 55 says, for you shall go out with joy. You would think he'd be thinking these people are now hailing me as king. I love them. They're seeing me. They recognize me as king. But do you know what the Bible says he was doing as he rode down the Mount of Olives? He was weeping. He was crying. And the Bible says he wept over the city of Jerusalem because he knew what was going to happen to it. I had told you that within 40 years of his life, the people that were alive in that city when Jesus was crucified, many of them, would be destroyed by the Romans. Many of them would be crucified themselves. Many of the women would be raped. Many of the babies would be killed. The hills would be completely destroyed. Listen to the words of Jesus as he weeps over the city, saying, if you had known now, oh, excuse me, this is Luke 19, 42 and 43, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, that's 66 AD, surround you and close you in on every side. Jesus has a heart for the people of Jerusalem. He's heartbroken over the fact that they have rejected him. And because of their rejection, the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. Now, the people of Israel are set aside for a while, but they will be restored. Blindness has happened in part to Israel, the Bible says, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. But Jesus has a heart for them. And I want to end this study on a sad note. I, I try to end them on, a, on an upbeat note. But I want you to think of your friends, your families, your coworkers, your acquaintances who don't know Christ. May you have a passion for their souls. May you care deeply about them. May you break away from just living for yourself and live a sacrificial life where they can see Christ in you, the hope of glory, and be drawn to him that one day they will shout for joy with you as we see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for the opportunity that we have here. We thank you that we're able to see Jesus entering in and all the things that are happening on that day. And there are surprising things that are taking place. There are surprising things that are happening. And Lord, I pray that we would have that same heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.